came on a great day because this is a cool series. We started it last week. You can catch up online. We have audio and video up on our website on there. And we were introduced to this man named Elijah who did amazing things and is remembered as one of the greatest prophets, greatest men of God there ever has been. And we learned how he was made into that man last week. He was made into this man because you have to be made through the circumstances in your life. God uses them to train you and prepare you for the things he calls you to do. And that's what we saw last week. So Elijah has gone through this very difficult time. You know, he was basically told by God, hey, you need to tell this king because he lived in the time of King Ahab, which the Bible tells us was one of the most evil kings to ever live. And Israel had some bad kings that did some bad things. But this one in particular was the worst, the worst king that they had ever had. And uh, the first thing Elijah does when he comes on the scene as this prophet is he goes, tells Ahab, okay, there's the judgment on God on you. So there's going to be a drought for over three years. And then all of a sudden God says, okay, but before we can have this showdown with the evil king, we need to take you away. Because God did want to confront this evil king, wanted to confront some of the things that were happening in that culture of his day. But before he could do that, of course, Elijah had to be trained. And today we're going to see that showdown take place. Because when it's a time of evil, when it's a time when things are bad, someone has to stand up. Someone has to stand up. And that's what Elijah was called to do in his time. And some of us are called to stand up in our community, in our families, in our culture, in our nation. And we're supposed to stand up and do what God called us to. That's what Elijah was. And today we're going to see that showdown, the, the rumble on Mount Carmel. It's coming. The showdown between Elijah and King Ahab is coming because that's what God does. It's time to end this evil but what's amazing about this showdown is it wasn't just about one wicked king. Sometimes we blame all our problems on leadership, don't we? One person, whether it's political or, or you know, they're in charge. And that's the reason why everything's so bad. But as we're going to see today, that's not the reason the things were so bad. Yes, evil king led people astray, but it was the people that needed to get something straight. And that's what God's about today. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 18. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We're going to have a lot of the verses up here on the screen so you can follow, but not all of them. So go back and read this on your own, maybe before your community group this week, so that you guys can discuss that for um, your community group discussion time. It'll help prepare you for that. So, as I mentioned, there, there's this drought that's going on. And a drought in the ancient world was a big deal because it was an agricultural society. You needed water so you could have plants and then you could feed the humans and the animals. And if there isn't a drought, there's no crops growing and then people are starving. People are starving and, and people are dying. We saw last week even someone died. Someone died because of this drought. Now, God did something cool in that situation too. But even through that, because he brought that boy back to life. But we're going to see this terrible time of drought that's been going on for years, some three years. And, and all told, it would be three and a half years of drought. Very dangerous time. Very difficult. And finally, God says to Elijah, now is your time to go to Ahab. I'm going to send rain again, but we've got to put an end to what's going on. We've got to confront not only Ahab, but the people of Israel. So Elijah goes and he's looking for Ahab because Ahab is out finding water for his animals. Even the king didn't have enough water. That's how bad this drought is. So he's going out to get water for his animals. He doesn't really care about his subjects. But his animals, he's got to make sure his mules and donkeys have enough water, right? So he's out in the hills looking for springs, and he splits up with his palace administrator. They're out separate, trying to find water. And his palace administrator is a man named Obadiah. And that is who Elijah runs into, looking for Ahab. He runs into this Obadiah, 
And he, Obadiah recognizes him. It turns out Obadiah has still stayed true and faithful to the God of Israel. Even though a lot of people had stopped worshiping God, he was still faithful. And he sees Elijah and he bows down. He says, oh, it's so great to see you, Elijah. Because remember, Elijah had pronounced this drought and then all of a sudden disappeared. God had sent him out into the desert and then into the nation of Sidon. He hadn't been seen for years. Here is Elijah. Finally, maybe there's hope. And Elijah says to Obadiah, and in case you're wondering, this is a different Obadiah than the one who wrote the book in the Bible, just to make it more confusing for you. But this man, Obadiah, he's a faithful servant of God, and, and he sees Elijah, he's happy, and then Elijah says, could you take me now to Ahab? Could you take me to the king? I need to talk with him. And Obadiah's like, why would you want me to do that? Why would you want me to do that? I, I don't know if you know this, Elijah, but after you left from this drought, people were mad at you because you were the one who said there was going to be a drought and all of a sudden there's this drought. You are enemy number one, right? Public enemy number one. In fact, you are Israel's most wanted. On the top ten, you're number one. In fact, uh, in fact the king Ahab, he sent people all over into all the nations surrounding and made them swear on their lives that they're not hiding Elijah there. They want to kill you. And if I go back, if I go back to the king and I say, hey, I found this guy Elijah, I, I might die too. This is what Obadiah is afraid of. He's afraid of that. And, and he even says, what if you disappear again? That's what happened last time. We thought everything was going to get better when you confronted the king and then you were gone. Don't do this or else I will be killed. I will be killed. But Elijah says, no, 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 go and do it. Now, this scene is really interesting because it, it sets up this siege for the conf- uh, sets up the setting for the confrontation. And I believe that this is, scene is so important in this story because Obadiah was one of the most courageous men to ever live. Now, a lot of people think, well, why was he afraid? And people will even interpret it that way. Obadiah, he, he wasn't a good, good believer because he was afraid that he might get killed, unlike Elijah. But it says that Obadiah protected God's people at the risk of his own life. You know, he was an ancient day Oscar Schindler. If you've ever seen the movie Schindler's List, or, or you've heard the story about this real man in World War II who was a German intelligence officer, but he saw what was happening to the Jews in his day during World War II, and he decided to protect the Jews. And he had an ammunitions factory, and he would um, have these people work for him, these Jews, and he changed their paperwork, and he saved some 1,200 Jews throughout the war. And in fact, he used up his entire fortune bribing officials to protect these people. He saved so many. So this is who Obadiah was in the ancient world. Because Ahab's wife was a woman named Jezebel. She was from another nation, Sidon. And Sidon did not worship the God of Israel, the true God. They worshipped gods like Baal, who we're going to be talking about in just a minute. And she, when she married the king, she decided, hey, let's put all the prophets and all the servants and all the men and women who are truly devout members and worshippers of this God of Israel, we're going to put them to death. And Obadiah risked his life hiding a thousand of these prophets. A thousand of these people, he hid them in caves, and then he used his own money to get water and food to them in a drought to save these people. So he's, he's a courageous man, right? A hero. And yet even he was afraid of Ahab. I think this is setting the stage for how dangerous this is going to be for Elijah, because now he is going before the king. He is going before Ahab, and he is going to put his foot down and take a stand for what the truth is and against evil. So this is the scene now uh, Obadiah then introduces. He says, okay, come with me. And he takes Elijah to the king, Ahab. And that's where we pick it up in verse 17. 
1 Kings 18.17 When the king Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? They were blaming all the problems of Israel on this man because he had called down the drought, right? And Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, he replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Wow. Now, there was no First Amendment in this time period, in, in ancient Israel. If you spoke against the king, you would be killed. And yet here is Elijah, courageous enough to take a stand before King Ahab, knowing that even the bravest man who lived there, this courageous Obadiah, wouldn't do it, but he was going to do it. And he said, no, 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 it's not my fault. It's your fault. You and your family have led these people astray. And that is an issue. But as we'll see, that's not the only issue. But he's saying, hey, we've got to confront this king. We've got to do something to end this evil. So he says this to Ahab. He says, okay, it's time for a showdown. It's time for a showdown. You've chosen the Baals, these other gods, instead of the God of Israel, the God of our ancestors, who brought us out of Egypt. He says, you've forgotten those gods and you've gone after these false gods. So we're going to have a showdown. And I'm going to show you that our God is greater. We sang that this morning, right? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. That's what Elijah's saying. And he says, okay, there's just me as a prophet right now. He didn't say that there's these thousand other prophets hiding, right? He said, it's just me. I'm the only one that's public. The only prophet out of all the God's people. There were no pastors. There were no leaders. There was just Elijah. He says, there's just me, but there are 400 prophets of Baal. And there are 450 prophets of Asherah, who was a goddess. Probably the consort, the, the, the mistress of Baal, you know. They had all these gods and goddesses. He says, okay, so there's... There's 850 of those prophets. So let's have a showdown. Me versus them on Mount Carmel. And I, I want you to bring everyone. I want you to see Ahab that my God is greater. So bring everyone in all of Israel to come to this mountain to see this showdown. Okay, this, this is a prime event, right? Everybody's going to Vegas, right? See the showdown. Wants to get tickets. Pay-per-view. Okay, we got to get there. The showdown is happening on Mount Carmel. And I want to show you this map of... So you can see where Mount Carmel is. Mount Carmel was a, a mountain. They call it a mountain, but us Coloradans are like, really? Because it was only 1,800 feet, right, of sea level. But it, it juts right out of the ocean, so it seems pretty tall right there, especially in the Middle East there. So there's this mountain, and what's important about this mountain is that it's between Israel and Sidon. Sidon is where Queen Jezebel had come from. These are people that do not worship the one true God of Israel. And then Elijah says, I want to go on the mountain right between the two nations. And that's where we're going to have this showdown. That's where we're going to have this showdown. And this is what he says as everybody is assembled now. That all these 850 prophets, all these people of Israel, Ahab's there. We don't know if Jezebel's there. But everybody's there to watch for this showdown. And in verse 21, it says that Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver? Between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make a choice. But the people said, Okay, we'll do it. No, what did they say? Nothing. See, it was Ahab and Jezebel who had really led people astray. They'd been evil, done awful things, murdered the prophets of God. I mean, this is, this is bad stuff. 
But it was the people who were wavering. Elijah confronts the issue of what's going on here. Yes, the king's bad. Yes, leadership's bad. Politics, man, they're really leading us astray. We need to drain the swamp. But it's the people. You are the problem. That's what Elijah says to these people. You are wavering back and forth. You're wavering back and forth. And this was the issue of the day. And this is a big issue. Do you know what the first commandment is? The first commandment out of the ten that God gave us. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what it says in Exodus 23. You must not have any gods except me. That's the first rule God says. I am the God. No one else. You can't waver between two things. But this is what the people were doing. You see, they wanted to be politically correct. No, I don't know if that's the reason. But the people had said, hey, if our new queen worships Baal, we could still say God exists and he's a good God of our nation. But let's also say, hey, that God's pretty good too. That God is pretty good too. They were kind of waffling between the two. And, and why they did this. I, I, it's hard for us to understand. Well, why would you do that? You've had this one God brought you out of Egypt. You hear all these stories about the cool things he's done. And now you're going after this other God. Why is it? Why are you worshiping this other God? But some of you do understand this. Some of you understand this because you have tried some different religions. You've gone to a Buddhist temple, done some chanting. You, you've done some even Hindu yoga exercises, not just you know, for exercise, but you've done it to chant and to become one with the universe. You've tried the tabernacle. You've learned about the Quran. You've tried to figure out all these things. And then someone in your life dies and you're going to a seance because you want to talk to that person. Some of you have been there and you're trying these different things. You're hedging your bets. You're wavering and saying, well, maybe God is real, but let's try these other things too. And this was especially true in this day because Baal... This God of the Canaanites, the God of Jezebel that they loved and worshipped, was the God of the storm. He was the storm God. And if you ever, they, they have these ancient um, depictions of this God that they've uncovered, and he always had a lightning bolt in his hand, like Zeus. Because he was the storm God, and he was the one who could not only send lightning and have this power, but he was also the God of rain. And that's very important. We're in a drought here. Every year they would pray to Baal, asking him for rain. And now for three years there's no rain, so we need rain. People are starving to death. There is no food. We've got to do something to get food. Our, Our families are dying. We're broke. That's why they were going to Baal. Let's just try it. Because what if that's the true God? Let's, let's, let's pray to that God. Because he's the God of the storm, right? And what's even more interesting about this God, he was then considered the God of fertility. Because rain is what brought the crops, and the crops made animals and humans able to eat and reproduce. So, as part of the ritual practices for this God, is that they would go to the temple of Baal, and they would be these women, these priestesses, these prostitutes, that you would sleep with. And in that sexual act, it would bring more rain. It would bring more fertility to your family, to your animals, And this was how people worshipped. So even that maybe enticed some people, right? Okay, maybe God is is real, this this God of Israel, but let's try this stuff. Because what if it does work? I I, want to have kids. I want my animals to be able to reproduce so we can eat and survive. So they're going after this Baal because of what they can get back. And that is really the essence of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, John Calvin said that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. 
We want these things to help us. We want there to be this power that can help us in these desperate times in our lives. So our minds, our hearts create these idols. They're perpetual forge, always making new idols. So some of you understand this way back and forth because you've been there. You've tried some different religions. You want anything that could work. Ouija board. Okay, I've got to just try anything if it could work. But some of us in here have, you know, grown up Christian. And we're like, man, I'd never do that kind of stuff. But we still make idols. We still make gods in our minds of things. Because we want things to do for us what only God can do for us. That's what they wanted Baal to do. To give rain. God isn't bringing rain for three years. Let's maybe try this idol. So we don't have these uh, different idols and gods necessarily. Some of us have seen that and and been a part of that in, in this country and in cultures around the world. But some of us make our own gods. Some of us make our own gods in our heart. And, and think of, in particular, money. That's, that's one of the main ones, right? It's one of the main idols we make in our heart because we long for security. We long for security. If I had this money, then I would feel secure and safe. If I just had that money for a down payment, then I'd be able to get a house and things would be so much better. If I just had a, a little bit of a raise, then we'd feel more comfortable and life would be good. We, we ask these things to do for us What God can only do for us. We saw last week that God provided for Elijah when he was in the desert, right? And only God can do that. Provide for our needs every day. Give us this day our daily bread. But we ask money to do that for us. I just need more money. And I just need it. I want it. And money becomes an idol for our heart. Becomes an idol for our heart. And this idolatry is a big deal. You know, I have a friend who is a missionary to Bolivia. And... His name's Jeremiah, and Jeremiah, when he first got down to Bolivia a few years ago, he was working with the church there, and he was really excited. He was really stoked because this young family had asked them to dedicate their firstborn son, this child, and said, would you dedicate this child? And he was honored. He did it at their Sunday night service. He dedicated this child, said a great prayer. He had learned Spanish, and he was excited to use the Spanish in the church service. He was pumped. But then, the air got deflated out of him because the pastor of that church said hey you know Jeremiah before that family came here tonight asking for you to bless their child they went to the Roman Catholic church service this morning and had that baby baptized and you know what they did yesterday they found one of the Incan witch doctors and had that witch doctor cast a spell to protect this child they were hedging their bets right Okay, maybe this will work, maybe this, maybe this, but we'll just try all of them. So you may be like, well, I've never been to a witch doctor, but we have these idols in our hearts that we're hedging our bets with. Maybe all, if I can work harder and make more money, then things will be good, and I'm going to trust in that, not in the God who provides. We hedge our bets. And that's what's going on, this waffling, this wavering back and forth with the God of Israel. And money's in a particular bad one. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 6.24. He says, no one can serve two masters. This is the problem with wavering. No one can do it. For either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So whether it's money or or some other idols that we'll talk about in a little bit, you can't have two. God says, no, no, no. There will be no other gods before me. It's just me. That was the problem with Israel. You guys ready for the showdown? Ready for the showdown? Well, 
Elijah tells them, he says, okay, now, now go get some bulls. We'll take two bulls. We're going to do a sacrifice. And I want you to cut up the bull just like you normally do. These prophets of Baal, there's the 450 of them. And he says, okay, there's just me. I'll cut up this bull. And what I want you to do is put the bull on the altar like you're going to do a sacrifice, but don't light it. Don't light it. Okay? And I'll, I'll do the same thing. So they do this. They, they cut up the bull. They get everything ready. This beautiful altar that they built on top of Mount Carmel that they can worship the Baal. And then uh, Elijah says in verse 24, says, then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he's God. Now, I want you to notice something that if you guys don't know this, but whenever you see the word Lord capitalized like this in the Bible, it's a name. It's a name. It's actually the proper name that the God of Israel asked Israelites to call him. And it's the name Yahweh. It's the name Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord capitalized, that's what it means. So he's saying, hey, there's this God named Baal. And there's also this God named Yahweh. We're going to have a showdown. Whoever brings fire on this altar to light up this bull, that's the true God. Showdown time. Showdown time. So they do it. These uh, prophets of Baal start early in the morning and they start praying and chanting and saying, Baal, bring down the fire. Bring down. He's the God with the lightning bolt in his hand, right? Send it down and light up this bull on fire. And they chant and chant and chant. And now it's noon. Halfway through the day, they've been going for hours, four, six hours, they've been praying and chanting and moving around in a circle. And it says in verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. He's taunting. This showdown's getting even more, right? Okay, this, this is some trash talk. This is getting heated here. And I know it's really interesting that that phrase, he is busy in Hebrew, probably means that he's uh, going to the bathroom. He's saying, okay, your God is not on some great glorious throne in heaven. He's on the porcelain throne. And maybe that's why he's too busy. Maybe he's too busy to come. Elijah's saying, this is a showdown. We're going to see who's the real God. Who's going to answer by fire to our prayers? And then what it says is that they, they started shouting louder. They're, Elijah says shout louder. They're shouting louder. They're, they're doing everything they can to get this bill's attention. Please bring fire down and show that you are the true God and that you are the God. Bring this fire down. And then they start cutting themselves. Literally, they, maybe they need more blood for the sacrifice, so they're slashing themselves. Self-mutilation, which was one of the most desperate ways that people would call attention to their God in the ancient world. They're doing everything they can to get Baal awakened, and nothing's happening. And I think what we see here is what happens when we do worship idols in our hearts. Because when we do have these gods that our hearts go towards, and we want them to help us and do the things that only God is supposed to do, Yahweh, we begin to do crazy things for them. We begin to do crazy, wild, outrageous things. I mean, just think of the addict who's willing to steal and do anything so they can get the substance to make them feel better. Or, or, or think about the parent who's willing to sacrifice his marriage and his family for a fling of an affair. Because sex becomes that God. They're willing to do crazy things, ruin their family, do anything to get this thing. 
That's why idols make us crazy. They, they take over our hearts. You know, there, there are some good things in our life that we make into these idols. And when we take those things and make them the most important thing in our life, it's very bad. There's a saying that I heard from a pastor that said, when a good thing becomes a bad thing, or when a good thing becomes a God thing, it's a bad thing. So I just want you to remember that. Because some things are good. Sex is good. Let's not pretend. Okay, kids are very good. Blessing from the Lord. But some parents then will have their child and, and that becomes their life. Everything's about this child and they love this child and they have meaning in their life for the first time because of this child. And then the child starts to become disobedient. And they get angry. And then the child gets a boyfriend in high school or moves away after college and you don't see him very much. And if this child, who is a very good thing, becomes your God thing, it ruins you. You have no meaning. Or for the person who relationship becomes their God and they just, I felt so fulfilled now. And they're willing to leave their moral values, leave their family to go after this person so they can have this good relationship. They're, oh, they're in love. And the honeymoon period wears off and then the person leaves them and they become so desperate that they are willing to take their own life because this thing is all that they have a good thing has become a god thing and it's a very bad thing they're doing something crazy that they would never have done before only because of this idol that's happened in their heart that's why god says no no, no. we have to have a showdown and show who is the one true god because there can only be one. Um, <clears throat> you guys know the movie or books, The Lord of the Rings? I, I, I really like them. Um, you know, there's the ring, the, the ring that Sauron, the enemy king, who's the most evil king ever, this super powerful one who has all these armies obeying him. This one ring at the very end, they throw it in the Mount Doom, right? Spoiler alert. And, of course, Sauron's power, the evil enemy, just with that one ring, is destroyed. Right? This one ring, if it's destroyed, all his power is gone. So there was a woman who wrote to J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of these books, and said, why would you do that? Why would you... That doesn't make any sense. This all-powerful being that can control the world and take over everything. One little tiny ring can take his power out. And, and Tolkien wrote back to her, and I have this quote that in the letter he wrote back to this woman. He says, The ring of Sauron is only one of the various mythical treatments of the placing of one's life or power in some external object, which is thus exposed to destruction with disastrous results to oneself. So what he's talking about here is that that ring is an idol. It's this powerful thing that if you put every trust in this thing and then it's gone and destroyed, it will destroy you too. That's why the person who this relationship has become their God, when that relationship is gone, that person breaks up with them or divorces them, they want to take their own life. Because they have nothing left to live for. All their power has now gone into this external object, this idol. That's why idols are so bad. And God says, no, 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 you can only have one God. Because it will ruin you if you go after these other gods. That's what he wanted Israel to see. So still, there's no fire. They've been chanting, cutting themselves, crying out. No fire has come down from heaven from the God of lightning, right? Nothing's happened. So Elijah says, okay, can I have a try? Can I go now? So he goes and he, he prepares the altar and he gets the bull there cut up on it. And he says, no, 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 that's not enough. So he asked some of the people there, he said, could you bring me some water? 
Could you bring me some water? So they go bring him four big uh, jugs of water. And he says, could you just pour it now on this altar? With all the, the wood there. And they pour the four jugs. And he says, that's not enough. Go get four more. And they do it again. And he says, that's not enough. Go do it again. So now there's 12 jugs of water poured on this wood. Has anybody ever tried to, to light a fire when it's wet, the wood? Okay, they didn't have gasoline or lighter fluid. They didn't even have lighters back then, right? And this is covered with water, soaking wet. Uh, one commentary said, based on the, the size of jugs in those days, it was probably about 50 gallons of water poured on this altar. And then Elijah says, okay, this is my time to take a stand for my God, the one true God, Yahweh. He is God and not Baal. He is false God. He's an idol. And that's when Elijah begins to pray. So we're going to see that in verse 36. It says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. He's not chanting. He's not cutting himself. He's not yelling at the top of his lungs and dancing around. But he says, Praise, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So God had told him to do this. So in case you want to try this at home, wait till God tells you to do this, okay? But that's what God told him to do. And he's saying, hey, God, I want everybody to know. They, they, he prayed so everybody could hear him. I want them to know that you are the one true God, Yahweh, that there are no other gods. People worship these things, but they're false gods. They're idols. I want everyone to know that you are God. And everyone is sitting there in anticipation, right? There's the Israelites watching on. There's the 450 prophets of Baal cut up and maybe they're getting some things to cover up their wound now, some bandages on. And there is Ahab, the king, who's been worshiping Baal all this time because his wife had said, hey, let's go worship Baal too. And they're all waiting and watching. Do you know what happens? Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, all the Israelites, they fell prostrate and cried, Yahweh, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. For the first time, they realized that there are not multiple gods. There's only one God who answers with fire, who has the power over the weather. There's only one God that needs to be worshipped. And finally, they got it. Took this showdown for them to understand. They finally picked a side and they picked the right side. So here's my big idea today. Here's my big idea that I want you to get out of this message. That the Israelites needed to learn because they were the ones wavering back and forth. They were kind of going after both gods. They were polygamists. I don't know what the term would be for that. Okay? They, they, they have multiple gods, right? They're, they're hedging their bets because who knows what could save us? Who knows what could help me? But God shows them today, that day, and shows us today, we can't hedge. We need to pick one God. So that's the big idea. Don't hedge. Go all in with God. Go all in with God. It, some of you have kind of been straddling the fence, whether it's trying multiple different religions out, trying different chants out and this and that. And God is saying, no, no, you can't hedge. There's only one God. and You must worship me. There are no other gods before me. Or for those of us in here who 
say, hey, I believe in the one true God, but then we kind of hedge our bets with these false gods. These idols that we make of our heart, whether it's money or our kids or a relationship or, or any of these other things that become our God, we're hedging our bets. But no, no, no. God says only one God. Stop hedging and go all in. Now, of, of course, if you haven't seen World Series of Poker, what we're saying here is, is that you can't bet on two different things. You can't bet on two different things. The World Series was this week, and I am a Dodgers fan. I know, yeah. You can feel sorry for me, right? Oh, yeah. And Amy Brandt, um, who helps out in our office, uh, and, and she's our social media coordinator, is a Houston fan. She's from Houston. So she, we had a bet on the, in the World Series. So I, my bet was if the Dodgers win, I get a dozen donuts. And if she said Houston wins, they got a dozen bagels. So, of course, she got a dozen bagels this week. But I didn't hedge the bet, right? I stayed with my team, even though they were bad. But I could have hedged. And what hedging is, is put some money on the other team. So that way you wouldn't lose as much, right? You, you'd win either way. And that's what hedging is. You, you also talk about like a hedge fund, where you put your money in a bunch of different things, so if one stock goes down, you're still okay. Right? That might be a good idea when it comes to finances, but not when it comes to God. God says, don't hedge. You need to go all in. Put all your chips in. One bet on me, because I answer with fire. I have power when everything else will let you down. And this scene here, with all these prophets up there, all the people watching, the king there, man, isn't this like the end of The Wizard of Oz? Man, another spoiler alert. It's from the 30s, though, <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet. But, you know, they, they go, and there's this great big Wizard of Oz, all this power, and they go there, and the, the dog opens up the curtain, and there's this man with the megaphone, right? He's got no power. He's just tricking people. That's what happens with these false gods. They will always let you down. They will always let you down. Your kids will move away. That relationship at some point will end, whether it's a breakup or divorce or whether one of you dies, the relationship will end. The money will never be enough because then you'll buy the house, you'll feel good, and then you've got to pay the mortgage. You've got to buy new furniture. Okay, the money is never enough. You always need more and more and more. The job that you've been looking in for security, you'll lose it or you'll retire having a long career and then you'll be walking aimlessly. What's the meaning of my life now that I'm retired? There's no purpose. Whatever we're looking into for security in our life, these gods that we create, they will let us down, but not Yahweh. Not the God of Israel. So I want to challenge you, don't hedge your bets, go all in with God. And if you're saying, well, Matt, I don't know, I don't know if I have these gods. Like, I've never put that much trust in a thing. I've never done that. But I, I want to challenge you. Martin Luther, the theologian, who, if you didn't know that this is the 500th anniversary of him starting the Reformation, which is a pretty big deal. Martin Luther, this great theologian who helped reform the church, he said, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. So whatever your heart is clinging to this thing that you need and want and desire. I need this thing all the time. When it's taken away, you, oh, you ache because you need it for meaning, for purpose, for identity. That is your God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another German theologian, said, everything which keeps you from loving God above all things, everything which gets between you and your obedience to Jesus is the treasure to which your heart clings. So I want you to think about it. What is the idol in your life? All of us have them. What is the thing that you're worshipping? Our, our minds are perpetual forge, always making something new to trust in. 
What is the thing? And that's one of the questions I have for you to prepare for community group this week. The second question. To think about what is the thing right now that my heart is clinging to? Is it money? Is it security? Is it a relationship? Is it, is it a job? Is it something that I haven't even mentioned? Fame? Respect? What is this idol that you need? And that's the thing we need to say, I'm done with it. I'm not hedging my bets anymore. I'm going all in with God. I'm going to take a stand just like Elijah did on this God, the one true God, Yahweh, the one true God, because that Yahweh, of course, became man, didn't he? He came down to this earth as Jesus Christ, and he lived among us, loved us, and even gave his life for us. And that Jesus said the same thing. You can't have two masters. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are no other ways. We cannot be pluralistic. We cannot hedge our bets. We can't waver between all the different gods of this world. You have to choose, Jesus said. And then he died on the cross and rose from the dead to prove that he is that one true God. And that's the God today I want you to take a stand with and declare, saying, I'm going all in today. I'm not going to waver anymore. I'm going all in with this God. So we're going to have the band come up now. And and we're going to take communion. On the first Sunday of each month, we take communion where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is for you. I don't care what denomination or church you're a part of. It doesn't matter. We come here together and we take this bread and this cup. We remember what Jesus did, that he is the one true God. He is the one we will take a stand with. He is the one we're going all in with. But if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've been wavering. You thought, maybe there's this God that's being out there, but I don't know about this God. And maybe today is the day that you decide I'm going all in. And as we take the bread and the cup, I want you to do that and through that declare that this God, Yahweh, this God, His Son, Jesus Christ, they are God. They're the one God. And I want that to be your declaration and that for you to stand with Elijah Stand with the rest of this church and declare that that's the one true God through this communion. And then we're all going to stand up and close in worship. Um, so let's pray. God, um, some of us have never seen fire from heaven. We've never seen these miraculous things. But, but Lord God, you've spoken to our hearts today. And you've challenged us to put aside these other idols that we're wavering between or these different religions that we're kind of interested in. You've challenged us to say that you are the one true God. That we will have no other gods before you. So I pray that we would be able to go all in together. And as we remember that your son Jesus came to earth to be just like us, human in every way, live a perfect sinless life, and then die having his body broken and his blood shed for us. And as we take this bread, as we take this cup, Would you just remind us of that? And would you help our hearts to just go all in for you, to take a stand, saying we will have no other gods but only you in our lives. Amen.